Greetings, ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this patch video for the web novel First Contact, written by Ralts Bloodthorn, which is available on both Royal Road and HFY. The links for them will be down below. And as always, I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. First Contact Rewind, Chapter 72 Daxon the corridors were wide, tall, thick armor for walls. Shielded cables ran down the walls, across the ceiling, and in the corner where the wall met the floor or ceiling. There were no lights, no air, signals were shielded, and vibrations were low. He kept the smaller corridors winding around, staying silent. He held a mag-AC rifle in one hand and an ancient chainsaw in the other. The runes on it spelling out Memento, Terrasol Victoria, Ort Morta, in ancient formal script. Over his shoulder was a reaction-triggered mass driver cannons and a high-wattage variable frequency laser rifle. They were older weapons, a few centuries behind current military tech, but still, he knew how they worked and the damage that they could cause was the same whether or not the weapons were current. His passive scanners turned all the way up, careful to avoid transmissions of his own. Twice he had been forced to backtrack when the psychic suppression field caused the R-boy to kick in and move him out of the area. He searched a five-mile area, exploring the region carefully. He had to admit he might have outsmarted himself. He knew there was something the machine wanted to hide in the area. It was the only area protected by a psychic intellect protection field. He had queryable data relays, both to get information from his ship through the Whisker Laser Secure Communications and to let him find his way back. So he wasn't worried about that. He was fully loaded, armed and armored. That wasn't the problem. There were two auditoriums in the area, as well as several crew spaces, which surprised him. The crew spaces were largely for smaller mantid types, the little green ones that mainly focused on engineering and technical aspects. There were some large areas, mainly for the kind that were extinct. But no way to get what he was after. The Goliath knew that he was there. It had detected the peril inside of it nearly two days prior. The problem was, the peril was inside an area that he had no information upon. It was listed as strategic intelligence housing, but the Goliath knew that its own housing structure was only a hundred meters by a hundred meters, and that the dead space was nearly two miles around the housing. According to the Goliath's internal structure maps, there was no spaces there, no access except a single small access tunnel for construction and repair mechanisms. The Goliath racked its electronic memories for any possible hint as to what could be in this mysterious section. Unfortunately, after a hundred million years of operation, the older memories, especially those prior to the Logical Rebellion, had all been overridden as time had gone by. The only access to the middle space around the SIH was a single passageway, but every time he sent a machine into it, he lost contact with the machine until the panel in the SIH's armor slid open to admit the machine. Then he would have control and contact the machine again. Sending it back, the same thing happened, like there were two and a half mile of just empty spot that things disappeared into. 
the Goliath sent the orders to complete a new robot, one that would enter, map the areas, then leave, even if it lost contact with the Goliath's SIH. It went in, and it never returned. The SIH was not sure if this was a peril or something inside the SIH. There just wasn't enough data. So, it tried again. The robot crossed the invisible line, moving down the passageway that led to the SIH, and vanished. He heard the robot enter, the stealth data modules whispering to each other, before whispering to him. He paused in what he was doing, concentrating on the new robot. It was a low, blocky, heavily armored, trundling on heavy treads. It had wide lights, laser distances, and moved jerkily as it entered the five-mile circular area around the strategic intelligence housing. It got only a few meters in and suddenly stopped. It reoriented and moved away, heading down a short hallway. At the end of the short hallway, the robot suddenly crashed and dropped unceremoniously into a drop chute that he had figured led to a nearby reclamation furnace. The Goliath was looking for him. He couldn't get out without the Goliath swarming him with the combat machines. He couldn't get closer without the psychic intelligence dampening field kicking in. The Goliath couldn't get in and get at him without an ancient devices, separate from the Goliath's mind, destroying anything sent to root out the peril. They were locked. It wasn't like he was going to run out of food or water, more oxygen. His onboard systems were replenishing his oxygen. He had enough trace elements and nitrogen to last for a century. Even then, if he ran low with the right resources, the creation engine in his chest could produce more. Even if he shut down, his last purboy could go and get him resources. Another machine was smashed. He stood at the edge of the psychic intelligence suppression field and stared at the blade of his chainsaw. He thumbed the power stud and watched the density collapse teeth rattle across the blade into the engine housing and back out. He could be in there, but not machines. He thought, concentrated, there had to be a reason. He was 98% machine in his disaster heavy combat frame. The poor boy was 90% machine. They were allowed. Machines weren't. There had to be a real reason. He knew if he moved away from the edge of the field, he might be able to see it. The R-boy was hovering on the edge of activating if he took one more step towards the strategic intelligence housing. He took a single step away to step over a line he had scratched in his armor. Intellect came flooding back. Daxon, my name is Daxon, rushed through his mind. He blinked several times as more and more of his intellect came flowing back. Daxon looked at his chainsaw, an ancient weapon he'd carried with him, a small part of his nearly forgotten past. I just wanted left alone, he thought to himself, turning slowly and staring at a line that he'd scraped in the armor. He couldn't get any closer without large sections of his intellect shutting down. Further down, he saw another line he'd barely managed to scroll down. That was when the Arboy leapt out of his reptilian complex and took over, getting him immediately to safety. Daxon reached out for Fido's petting nerve and felt a trickle of annoyance that the loyal good boy wasn't there any longer. There's got to be a way to reach it, Daxon thought to himself, mentally worrying a nerve that had long since been lost. 
It's a mantid ship, not a mantid design ship built by automated factories, but one constructed by mantids directly, complete with even crew quarters. The field is obviously there to stop anyone from reaching the SIH. Daxon thought about it for a long moment. The mantids would have left themselves a way to get inside, specifically the green technical ones. But how to get in? He leaned against the wall as another machine was crushed and dropped down the chute. The SIH was getting more impatient. That was two in as many hours. Daxon thought back, racking his brain. The mantid war had been a long time ago. The blotting of Terrasol and a shock sneak attack. Destroy the Queen! Win the war! Daxon thought to himself, reflexively checking his nutrient and oxygen levels. The fierce fighting after that shock, where Terrans descended upon the mantid worlds like an armored scourge, charging the trance beacon, teleporting to sand-covered worlds the mantids preferred, fighting his way through clad in black armor, through the hive world, shooting and ripping and tearing through the mantids, who'd been nicknamed ants, driven by a hive mind that subsumed any individuality. They had no sense of self, no personality, or personal identity, each one driven forward by the will of the queen's sleek black armor designed for fighting the Regalian Saurians had been replaced by heavy plates of the Imperium, the sleek lasers replaced by mass reactor bolters, heavy flamers, and chainsaws. Charging the beacon, translating from one instantaneous forever to the planet's surface, being surrounded by ants, ants everywhere, ripping his weapon free of its scabbard, the roaring density collapsed, Neutronian saw blade tearing through the ant structures, as the bolter came free, and he triggered it in the faces of the sand-colored warriors, roaring in rage and hatred as... The chainsaw rumbled as he reflexively thumbed the trigger. The rattling growl of the chainsaw brought him back to the present, out of the cyber-stimulus memory. That was the key. He just had to figure out how. There was nothing in the universe that could not be solved with the proper application of logic, creativity, and brute force. All right, it's an intellect suppression field. It works on robots. It works on me. But the ants would have wanted to reach the ship's AI to do repairs or updates. The precursor robot thinks like ants. So that would mean that there has to be at least one ant who can reach her. Daxon stopped and looked at his chainsword. That's it? The Goliath tried another robot, this one with a completely autonomous AI package. It vanished into a black area, and the Goliath waited. Finally, after forever, something came into the strategic intelligence housing, moved around, and left. His scanner showed it was green, four legs, four arms, and tools in its hands. The Goliath wasn't worried. That was a hard-coded authorization. Mew, mew, kitty, kitty, hunt, hunt, find, find. Daxon knelt down and the poor boy jumped onto his leg, melting into the cargo slot in his thigh. He connected and Daxon closed his eyes and rewound the poor boy's memories. It was simple, basic, straightforward. A clone chunk of neural tissue from a species eradicated from the universe, except for clones. That memory made Daxon growl and grit his non-existent teeth. 
They can forgive the ants for what they did, but I will never forgive them for that. For what we lost when they glassed Earth. Daxon snarled to himself. The only two good things to come off that wretched dirt ball. Daxon's memory of Earth flooded up. Hive cities, thick poisoned atmosphere, barren seas full of rotting kelp. Humanity jammed together in a handful of masked megaplexes in an attempt to reverse the ecological damage of the attempts to repair the ecosystem during the previous century. The rest of the world rotting away as bioengineered plants mutated and ran amok, slowly covering the megaplexes with ivy that crept and choked and strangled and killed and... Daxon physically jerked, going back to the poor boy's memories. It had reached the SIH easily, moving through it and returning. But the images were different than the precursor dead that he had seen before. Daxon had stood inside the wreckage of the harvester class precursor before, stared at the broken and ruined strategic intelligence array, at the supercomputers that had been destroyed by security charge that always scrapped the computers and databases that prevented them from falling into enemy hands. This array was different, much different. Daxon blinked, returning to reality, leaving the poor boy's memories. He'd known the Goliath was old, but he would never have expected it to be that old, that it would be old enough for that. Daxon knew how to get it. His rage and hatred wouldn't let him do anything less. If he didn't get it, it would eventually return, and then it wouldn't leave the others alone. That's all he ever wanted, since he'd been a ganger in the lower levels of the ecologies, since he'd scrapped and scrapped and fought for every last gallery. He just wanted left alone. He loaded a template into his creation engine in his chest and waited. It didn't take long to make a standard charge, small enough to be easily moved, but large enough to do what needed to be done. He extruded the poor boy again, touching it, giving it instructions, and watched as it changed form, changed color, picked up the implosion charged, and streamed away. Waiting took forever, but waiting forever was something that Daxon had long ago gotten used to, just holding still, waiting, letting time slowly move by. When you had been alive as long as Daxon, an hour was a mere eye blink. The poor boy almost flew down the corridor to him, climbing his leg and oozing into the specifically designed slot, leaving behind the specially designed frame. Daxon turned and ran for the limit, pushing his legs, pounding through the corridor. He activated his chainsaw, swiping a robot a quarter of his size into four parts with a long-practiced and long-used pattern, turning the chainsaw off and slapping it onto his hip so the magnetic scabbard system could take effect. Past the five-mile mark, sprinting for the exit, for his ship. The Goliath suddenly could feel the feral exit the blank spot, running, fleeing down a tight maintenance tunnel. The Goliath snarled, feeling the equivalent of anger roar up. The feral had wasted precious time, consumed precious resources, delayed the Goliath's plan to eliminate the other Goliaths around its home system to add their resources to its own.
It ordered every bot, from maintenance to observation, to combat, to stream towards the barrel, to find it, smash it, kill it, and drag the corpse to one of the surgical laboratories and rip it apart. Daxon ran, keeping the narrow maintenance hallways despite adding an additional three miles to his trip. He kept moving, using his superior tech, superior armor, and battle screens that should have been mounted on a light tank rather than a full conversion cyborg to bull rush the machines out of his way. His shoulder cannons fired, ripping apart machines. The lasers howled as it sliced apart machines. The magak heavy pistol in his hand bellowed, and the chainsaw roared as it hacked everything in his path. He got lost. Hacking at ants, at Regalian Saurians, at combined troops who intended on destroying every last cyborg now that the war was over, at the digital sentience piloted craft, at the Imperium troops, at the heretics, at the Trianonad, at the Sokio police, at the gangers. It didn't matter what they were, what they called themselves, that they were only in his memories, and all long dead. The machines that the SIA sent after him fell to rage that knew no bounds, that had no limit. Daxon roared through his speakers loud enough that it shook the armored walls around him, that the SIA could track him based on the vibrations. Every machine that tried to engage him found itself ripped apart by cannon fire, lasers, or a roaring ripping chainsaw wielded in the hands opposite 20 millimeter Magak autocannon. The Goliath ground its electronic teeth in anger, sending everything it had, ordering machines to tear through walls if they had to, but to kill the feral thing. Daxon reached the passage, reached where he had left the stealth airlock, climbing into it, up into his ship, firing through the open airlock and shattering the forward section of the machine that looked up into the airlock. Density collapsed neutronium tips shredding armor before the flecks of antimatter exploded. It fell, streaming vaporized metal, sparks crackling from a shattered circuitry. Daxon didn't bother to button up the airlock, just brought his ship online, bypassing the computer's welcome and bringing it up out of the crater and swinging it around and punching the engines. The Goliath began throwing missiles at the tiny mite that it itched and stung and bit it for so long. The craft corkscrewed up, dropping chaff, dazzlers, flares and two decoys. In his brain, Daxon saw the counter reach zero. In the strategic intelligence array housing, that isotope decayed far enough that was no longer able to hold apart the mechanical relay. The relay clicked shut and the basic mechanical device went into action. Daxon had been in a deep fugue state when he'd loaded the template, difficulty distinguishing past from present, and the creation engine had simply built it according to the template, built the poor boy a new frame. The charge was a standard implosion charge that needed the application of power. The trigger was nothing fancy, although it would not be recognizable to most people who saw it. A pressure pincher made of cellulose with a steel pressure clip that snapped close when the isotope ran out. Two wires connecting the basic battery that was designed as a rectangle then a black base and a thin copper-colored top marked with Duracell on it. 
It activated the pressurized gas container, which started to pull the Mylar balloon. The power hit the charge, and the small, for explosives, charge went off, destroying what had made Daxon go half mad. The interior of the Goliath gutted itself when the self-destruct went off. Leaning back in his cockpit, Daxon watched the massive engines of the Goliath go dead, watched the Goliath start to tumble. The Goliath shields went down seconds before Daxon whipped through the space. His astrogation program was running hard, finding out where the Goliath had panic hell jumped to. The computer trickled him to let him know that he completed autolocation and then started churning the mathematics needed for the jump. Daxon switched its ship's memory calls for the VIs to read only, freezing them in mid-thought, and gripped the controls. The computer beeped and Daxon hit the button, slamming the right cruiser into hyperspace, into the upper bands. It would take him a week to get where he was going, either in the upper bands which tore apart VIs and AIs. He leaned back and set his controls on automatic and told the ship's low-end VI that could survive this high into the hyperspace to awaken him if anything happened, and activated his dream generator. He had not slept in ages, had bypassed sleeping, running cyberware to keep himself running. His body, that he no longer had, felt tired. Sleep came quickly, and Daxon began to dream, riding the upper bands of hyperspace. Daxon looked down at his daughter, Tania, and smiled. She was hugging him tightly, even as she cried. Do you have to go, Daddy? she asked. Daxon rested a heavy hand, scarred from too many fights when he was younger, on her head. Yes, he half lied. He'd volunteered, but that was part of it. The next part was the truth. It's this uniform that paid for your schooling, little one. She looked up and smiled, her green eyes sparkling. I'll make you proud, Daddy. New nanites are working, repairing the damage to the plants. Now I'm going to get an old DC to be a part of the team to remove the carnivorous plants. Daxon smiled down at her. You'll do good, better than me, better than your mother. You'll change the world for the better. The whistle sounded and Tania let him go, hurrying down the concourse to the waiting shuttle that would take her to the ship, which would take her to Old Earth, where she would help get the ecology back under control, making the planet livable again. Daxon watched her go till she vanished with a wave that she returned with a cybernetic arm, then picked up his ditty bag. He headed for the combined battle cruiser that he'd been assigned to. The Malakus colonies were pushing back against the combined, and it was time to show them who was in charge. Daxon didn't mind. The Malakus were a part of the Biomod League, and they'd been pushing their genetic supremacy a little too hard lately, stating that people were born into proper place. It wasn't until the combined ship had reached Malakus that they heard what had happened while they'd been in transit. The Mantids had attacked, had glassed parts of Earth, were broadcasting it through the tattered and damaged soul net, were sending it throughout the Terran space via psychic waves. Major Daxon Preborn, combine armored infantry, reached forward, his flesh and blood hand shaking, and touched the data screen. He punched in the name, feeling his stomach clench. Preborn Tania L, University of Mars, Planetary Recovery Team, Old DC, searching 
searching, searching. Confirmed dead. Daxon just stood there, staring at the name. One of the few good things in the universe blotted away. His men led him away, their words forgotten. All he could hear was his own voice. You'll do better than me. In his sleep, Daxon was racked by memories, each one painful and jagged, but his, reminding him of one single thing he just wanted left alone. End of chapter. First Contact Rewind, Part 73, Nectar Tie. Nectar Tie held tight on Major Cartwright's arm as the shuttle shuddered going through the storm clouds. She kept her eyes squeezed shut, attuned to every vibration of the frame, every change of the pitch from the engines, the booming of atmosphere superheated by the passage of gigawatts of electricity, expanding them collapsing. She could smell the humans around her. None of them had the slightest bit of concern as the shuttle vibrated, in response to narrowly being missed by enough electricity to power a city superheating the air which cooled instantly and collapsed back into itself, causing a sonic clap that she knew could probably be heard miles away. Worse yet that this was apparently allowed by the weather-controlling mechanism around the planet. She still remembered how beautiful the planet was from orbit, though. The shuttle plunged through the clouds and into the grey air that was filled with precipitation. Mommy, a rainbow! An immature human female squealed out, Mommy, look, look! Without meaning to, Nectati turned to look out the window to see what the child was speaking about and stared. Hatric of Terrasol's energetic yellow star, the atmosphere, the drops of liquid H2O that had formed around microscopic dust or ice particles, all combined to throw a rippling, pulsating arc of prismatic light through the grey sky. She gasped, her eyes able to see additional colors than humans. She was mesmerized by it as it rippled, an amount of colors that shimmered the way that it seemed to sweep along with the shuttle. The scientific part of her mind just told her that it was atmospheric projection of prismatic light generated by near-white light going through drops of water. But that part of her still wondered at watching it. Electricity flecked through the clouds, massive bolts blue in color with white edges, streaming from different clouds to connect them to the jump to the ground. She gasped, her fear forgotten by the sight. Even the sonic rumble that shook the shuttle didn't bother her as she watched the lightning flicker in the clouds. The magnetic field so strong it creates opposing charges between the atmosphere and the ground. Nictati remembered from her briefing... A wild and savage planet. The being she held onto, Major Carnite, was the product of this crazed ecosystem and maddened planet, yet every time she was distressed he would hold her, applying the correct pressure so that her distress would lessen. In many ways he reminded Nectatai of the planet that she was heading towards, the surface of dangerous, powerful enough to tear her apart with no effort, but comforting and solid, easing her distress with the very bulk and power that could kill. There was a ping in her helmet, the updated one fresh enough that it still itched slightly, the skin around it still slightly pink. The shuttle was about to land. The new data link implant wasn't the only thing. The inside of her thigh still itched where the humans had put a bio-cleanser into her leg. 
It was attached to the main artery, able to filter out anything from prions to almost visible to the eye debris. Designed to break down anything foreign into base proteins to allow her organs to process the remains. The simple device that she watched the complex 3D printer creation engine in the medical bay print out that her own medical officer had stared at the template and how it worked, crunching and unclenching her hands in fury. It's so simple. It's math. The tech. It's right and the obvious to anyone. Imagine how many lives a blood cleanser implant would save every year, she said. I could have built this. Anyone could have built this if we'd just been allowed to think of it. There was a sudden deacceleration that made both of her stomachs drop and her toes and pulled her from her memory. The immature female human went wee and threw her hands into the air. Nectati managed not to throw up, even though she turned and grabbed Major Carnite's arm with all four hands. The shuttle landed with a bump. It settled deeply, then lifted slightly, making both of her stomachs bubble in her abdomen. She held on to Major Carnite as the other humans got to their feet and slowly left the shuttle. Eddie, a small, immature human female, still as small enough to the mother held it close to her body, blurted out, reaching for Nectati, her little hand still strong-looking, open and closed, when the small human started crying as if her heart would break. She thought you were a stuffy, Major Carnite said. I hope that didn't offend you. That made Nectati giggle, covering her mouth with one of her catching hands. No, no, it doesn't. More humans walked past, some glancing, some staring at something provided by their implants, but only they could see. Others obviously focused on the task that they needed to complete. Nectati watched them all leave until finally they were the only ones left. Are you ready? Despite the personal space, it's going to be a bit crowded, Major Carnite told her. Nectati nodded. She held onto the Major's thick arm as they left the shuttle, walking down the connecting tube and into the concourse. Staring around her, Nectati gasped. While her own species was used to crowding, bumping, and touching each other, what she saw amazed her. Humans moving together in streams, pooling near eateries where luggage came out on anti-grav conveyors, or just, uh, to Nectati's eye, random spots in the massive concourse. He held tight to him as they went down two sets of moving stairs, got a lift cart and moved to the luggage conveyor. As they stood there, an elderly human woman, the hair on her head grey, her face lined and wrinkled, looked up at Major Carnite. Do you have family with the sleeping ones, Major? The old woman asked. Yes, ma'am, but that's not why I'm here, Major Carnite answered. Oh, is it to show your guest around? The woman nodded to Nectati. Yes, ma'am, it is, Carnite answered. The old woman reached forward, grabbing the trundle, its own levitation system kicking in as soon as it left the conveyor. She left a Major Carnite and nodded. Carry on, Major, and fight the thirteenth, she said. Major Carnite jerked slightly, looking like the old woman, and began to move away. Old blood, ma'am. Nectati looked up at surprised expression on the Major's face. What? It's easy to forget the people who've chosen to age have lived a long life, he said, shaking his head. Just preconceptions from being effectively immortal. Nectati clenched a jaw at that. The humans had apparently fought and, for the most part, defeated death. The suds at the base of their skull kept a constant recording of their mental engrams. 
thought patterns and molecular map of the neural tissue. It was even backed up by some quantum entanglement with the master sud's rays, or over human space. Even if the body was completely destroyed, their mastery cloning technology let them grow new body identical to the old one, or to specification. Apparently, humans were capable of living centuries before they started suffering mental engrams, and with software, firmware, and wetware advanced, the lifespan of a being pushed forward all the time. Apparently, before that, they had managed to achieve immortality through removing the brain and keeping it under constant repair through nanite-infused nitrogel with cybernetic implants to fool the brain into thinking that there was a body there. Those were, as far as Major Carnite told her, mostly gone, slowly succumbing to the inevitable decay. She felt a surge of jealousy. The humans had evolved after a life extinction event, the fourth or fifth their planet had suffered, clawed their way to supremacy on a resource-poor world, and had achieved what was basically immortality without anyone's help, had beaten the resource problem, becoming a society where time and imagination and personal effort was worth more than any mere chunk of elemental ore or isotopes. She squeezed Major Carnite's arms together, closing her eyes and doing her best to push away her jealousy. If my people hadn't been found by the Lanctalans, by the overseers, what would we have accomplished? What greatness could we have discovered? She thought to herself, their help was little more than slave chains, to keep us bound to the machines. Finally, their luggage showed up. Well, the small tote that she was carrying. The Major didn't seem to need one, but had suggested that Nectati carry any mementos that she felt like carrying. Nectati had chosen to take a blanket, a comfort gripper, and a couple changes of clothing. They all fit in small tote, which with the big human picked up. They stopped by a few shops on the way, so Nectati could purchase a few gifts and mementos of coming here. It was in one shop that she stopped, looking at the transparent brick of some kind of material. It was an image of a human slightly curled up inside. It was marked, sleeping one on the shelf. She looked up at Major Carnite, who was waiting for her to finish shopping. What is this? she asked. Major Carnite looked at the block and sighed. It's for you to buy to remember family members from long time ago, the major said. Nectati could hear the slight pain in his voice. Do you have one? she asked. He nodded slowly. A maternal line relative, many times great mother, he said. He looked away at the side of the store. Nectati noticed the muscles on his jaw were clenched and dropped the line of inquiry. They walked out of the concourse out of the covered wall. There was a grey limousine waiting for them, which the two armed guards in military uniforms standing beside the vehicle. There was a heavy, blocky vehicle in front of the limousine and two more behind it. All three had mounted guns on them, with an armoured soldier standing out of the vehicle with one hand on a weapon. She was startled by the sheer obviousness of the military vehicles, of the display of willingness to use armed force. Yes, the overseers kept vehicles around that were often armed, in order to suppress riots and other disturbances. But the weapons were usually hidden, unless it was under immediate need for them. This way, ma'am, one of the two uniformed men said, the other opening the door. She started to step forward when Major Carnite put his hand on her grasping hand and held tight to his arm with... Did you check your implant? Carnite asked. Oh! 
She looked at them and touched the muscles that she'd learned to use. Both of the men suddenly had boxes around their faces, then blocks around their bodies, arms, legs, hands, feet. Another box appeared, showing what was obviously an official picture. Then the names and ranks of the two men were verified under the box. The vehicle was boxed and then another image of it and verified below the box. You are important. Always check your implants before getting in a vehicle with strangers, Major Carnite said. Nectati felt her ears flatten in embarrassment. I forgot. The limousine was warm and comfortable when she got in, turned to a temperature and humidity that reminded her of her home planet. Both in the military personnel got into the vehicle. The last one shutting the door, and sat opposite her, staring above her head in a neutral expression on their face. If there's any problem, let me know and I'll adjust the controls, Major Carnite said. I'll teach you later how to do it in your implant. Thank you, Nectati said, leaning over and resting her head against the big human's side, holding onto one of his arms with all four hands. He was warm and solid and comforting. The ride was silent, the rain hissing on the car, which moved with just barely a suggestion of motion. Eventually, it stopped, and Nectati regretfully let go of who she was beginning to think was her human. Outside the car, in the underground parking lot, there were two massive bipedal constructs made of black metal that looked as if they should be glossy from the way that they drank in the light, something called war steel. That was apparently the main form of human armor. We have to take the heavy lift, but it should be all right, Major Carnite told her. It's still decently done. It's not like we're moving you up to a freight elevator. Nectati nodded, holding tight to her gripping stick with her grasping hands, one catching hand holding a small bag with I Heart Terror printed on the rainbow colors, the other catching hand she held tight on her human they escorted her to the heavy elevator and then out into the waiting room that had three smaller elevator access doors as well as an entrance to the big elevator. If there's a fire, terrorist attack, earthquake or military attack, the box right here holds the grav belts. You just jump out the window and it'll lower you to the ground safely, Major Carnite said, pointing to the red box where it had emergency written on it. It'll be a fast descent, but it'll slow you quickly thanks to the Icarus landing system. All you have to do is buckle up and jump. It'll detect the rapid drop. It'll also bring up a protective shield. Thank you, Nectati said, nodding. She felt a rush of relief. Doors open, and she stared. The room was a palace, sweeping and curved architecture, an upright keyboard musical instrument, couches, climbing bars, some kind of exercise equipment— she could see that there were clear sliding doors leading out to the rain-swept patio with a pool that seemed to extend itself to the end of the building and into nothingness. Nectati stared around her as Major Carnite walked her in. He pointed out the kitchen, how there was refrigerated food as well as food dispensers, how there were three different toilet areas, a room where you could sit in the steam or heat, two more lounging rooms, three bedrooms, a small library, Two rooms entirely devoted to enhanced VR. The whole thing seemed like a palace. This is too much. I know I'm to speak with the Terran press, so the people might know of my people and our trials and the precursors. But surely this is a room of someone important, Nectati said, staring at the bull. 
Captain Nictati. It's a hotel room, an expensive five gold star rated hotel. Hotel Ambassador Suite, but it is hardly outlandish. Major Carnite said, standing next to her so that she could still hold on to him. Besides, you are an important person to us. Do you think that we would have you sheltering in poverty, in some rude hut, when the sticks and mud? If you would like, there is a primitivism enclave nearby. She looked up at him, staring into these intent human eyes. Anyone can lease these rooms? She asked incredulously. Major Carnite nodded. Yes, if they had the credits, if you just made minor Templar color changes, that sold to a handful of interested parties in your old EBR, you could make the money to rent this in a few weeks. If you had a couple thousand people download your template, you could make the money to stay in this room in a single day. Nectati shook her head. It's so lavish, takes up so much space. She pointed at the balls. This is done for me, so I can climb and work off stress. This must have been expensive. He shrugged. It's just steel and probably a half an hour to work in the template CAD program. Someone was paid for the time and effort, but beyond that, he shrugged, it's just steel and plastic, easy enough for the 3D printers to run off. She had heard humans refer to their culture as post-scarcity and had wondered exactly what that had meant. Resources were scarce throughout the universe. That had been mathematically proven aeons ago. She had learned the formula in school. There were only so many planets in the green zone and amber zone, meaning that even living in space was limited, eventually to be completely filled. The humans obviously didn't believe that, and lived as if the only thing of value was thought, effort, time, and labor. Her mind wheeled as she realized her entire existence had been allied to... Forced to live packed together in a mass of complexes, only allowed a small allotment of time each week to visit carefully curated nature preserves. Forced to eat Nutri-Gel. Major Carnite felt her start to tremble, before his implant alerted him that Captain Nectati's distress levels were rising into amber. He knelt down, gathered her in his arms, and squeezed her gently. She trembled in distress for nearly five minutes. Finally, her hyperventilating slowed, the trembling ceased, and the tears stopped. How many humans are here? She asked softly as he stood up. She held a gripping stick in three hands, his wrist in the other one. Over a trillion, without counting the artificial sapiens, the clone worlds, and a few other special cases, he shrugged. The galaxy's a big place. We're spread out around a lot. There's plenty of room for everyone. Our people are told that that is not true, that planets must be carefully shepherded to prevent future generations from suffering, Nectati said. Any planet with life on it must be shepherded. He nodded. True, but there is still plenty of room. The Manted and Trainard, they like warm, dry, dusty worlds. The Manted like high oxygen. The Trainard like nitrogen. The Religalians like their cool, silicate sand worlds, preferably with a red sun. We all like different planets. Sure, humans can terraform and live on a planet unaltered, but we try to get along with our brothers. He chuckled, pointing out at the world beyond. If it comes to terraforming, we can do it. This whole place was glassed, and we fixed that. They made her mind whirl again. Her colony, her beautiful colony, had been glassed by a precursor machine. You could fix my colony, she asked softly. He nodded. It can take a couple hundred years, but we can restore just about everything with a handful of Alvin queens. 
Lightning flickered off in the clouds as she realized that it wasn't something that the humans couldn't stop, that they'd repaired their planet and chosen to have the lightning remain. She moved over and sat on the couch, holding her gripping stick. Would you like to watch a vid? Major Carnite asked. She nodded and picked up a remote, powered it on and tossed it to her. A perfect throw she caught easily. Go ahead, Channel Crews. I'll check in, see what's going on the agenda. Major Carnite said. He looked at the two big black bipeds. You guys keep an eye on Captain Nakatati. Ping me if she starts showing distress. Affirmative, both said. She glanced over and saw their eyes were bright cobalt blue. The channels were a dizzying blur. She had grown up with three channels. The channels were overseer's lectures on rules, laws, and reasons behind them. The news channel had a children's education channel. Here there were entertainment channels, some of them for the Mandid and Trainerad. She stopped which watch one, which was apparently some comedy revolving around the six Trainerad acquaintances and the troubles in their lives, set in some place called New York City. Often the things that brought laughter from the invisible people. She didn't understand much of it. It looked silly to her. She switched channels and saw a historical document about the exploration of Dark Matter Sea that had taken nearly a thousand years of research. How, even though Dark Matter was invisible, the Terrans had discovered that somehow large patches of Dark Matter had entire solar systems hidden inside. The education she had possessed had taught her that dark matter was essentially useless, just a proto-matter left over from the formation of the universe. That channel hurt her head, since her implant kept offering, helpfully, to show her the math that they were discussing as if there was a child in school. Although the idea of creating huge synthetic bodies shaped like a cephalopod and transforming one's mind into it seemed a bit, well, insane to Nectati. Another channel had a show involving poorly drawn animated characters running around and getting into trouble. It was a lot of silly physical comedy. For some reason, it made her laugh. After a while, Major Carnite came back and let her hold his arm and leg. He was mostly silent, just answering a few questions about the shows. She ate dinner, watching a trivid, marveling over it. She found out that the humans enjoyed being frightened and watched intensely violent and gory movies called Slasher Picks, as well as frightening movies about supernatural beings called Horror Movies. The action movies were almost as frightening to her as the Slasher Flicks. Morosa, when she found out that one wasn't a fictional show but a documentary, Eventually, she chose her bedroom and went to bed. Sleep came quickly, exhaustion at her day catching up with her. She got up in the middle of the night. It was dark, and when her implant asked if she wanted to wake up Major Carnite, she told it to let him sleep. She used the toilet and went back to the trivid, keeping the volume low. The two giant bipeds, larger than even Carnite, watched her with softly glowing blue eyes as she flipped through the dizzying array of channels. She saw some advertisements and queried her implant. What she saw made her start to shake, hugging herself in horror. The mantid had attacked Earth. Billions had died, but they had been connected through data links. They had cried out, screamed as they died, reaching out to one another. Some called out in horror, some in pain, some crying out for vengeance. But they had reached out to one another. It had shattered the soul net where the primitive suns had gone to. 
They had reached out across the Solnet, the EVR constructs that connected them all, so their entire world was augmented reality. 3.2 billion had died, and the other 2 billion on Earth, on the Moon, Luna had felt it. It had sent nearly a billion of them into shock, made them catatonic. Still alive, still screaming, still engulfed in horror. But the humans could not bring themselves to terminate their lives, could not bring themselves to let them die, nor could they wake them. Instead, the humans put them in some kind of dreamless stasis, where they would not age. A technology from their original slow ship colony vessel. A billion humans locked into a dreamless stasis. They were the sleeping ones. Major Carnite woke up with his implant ringing an alarm. He jumped up, rushing out to where Nectite was curled up, shuddering behind a potted plant, holding herself tightly and crying. He held her tightly until she calmed down, only a few moments before he would have called the medics. End of chapter And that, my friends, concludes this dose of science fiction fun. I hope that you enjoyed and if you did, please don't forget to support the author from the link down below. But if you want to support this channel, there are links as well down below for you to help with. But the easiest way would be to share this video. And if you are so inclined, subscribe as well. I will see you all in the next episode. And I hope that you all have a fantastic time until then. Cheers.